everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Matt McManus. Matt is a professor of politics right now at Tech de Monterey, and this fall, he'll be at Whitman College. He's also an author of Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. And I got to know Matt because I read two of his articles, and they were both, uh, one was about postmodernism on the, on the right, so it was conservative postmodernism, and the other one was called Why Jordan Peterson is Always Wrong. And they were both kind of intriguing, and there's stuff I agree with, and I just wanted to, I was hoping he could come on and talk. So, hi, Matt. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, so, um, like I said, I, I know you from these three things. Uh, we were just talking a little bit before, but if you want to tell people a little bit about yourself and why you started critiquing this specifically, because I, I noticed some similar things, but I, I didn't know enough to call it postmodernism, and now I'm starting to see that. So, I mean, if you wanted to go into, like, like where you came from and how you started going on, like, thinking and writing about this. Sure. So um, I finished my PhD at York University in 2017, right around the time when Donald Trump was elected. Uh, and like everyone else, I was shocked by this. Right. Uh, I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of Hillary Clinton, but I fully expected that she was going to win. And more or less, the status quo would carry on as normal for the next four years. Uh, and at the same time as being you know, shocked and appalled by it, because uh, I deeply disliked his xenophobia uh, and his approach to the truth, uh, it was it's certainly an interesting phenomena from a political science-y, political theories-type perspective. Uh, and what really struck me about the Trump administration was some of the rhetoric it used, dismissing truth claims, uh, talking about elites and epistemic authority. Uh, you know, that's my term. Uh, and so what I decided to do was go back and start looking at some of the classics of the conservative tradition to try to figure out why it is uh, that Trumpism emerged. And what I found was quite intriguing, uh, which was that a lot of the stuff I encountered in the classics of conservative tradition wouldn't be out of place uh, in what we would characterize as postmodern theory, um, which I'll get into in a few seconds. And that's when I started to make the connection and came up with the idea that maybe what we were seeing was a distinctively postmodern form of conservatism with the emergence of people like Donald Trump, Viktor Orban, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, and some others. Okay, yeah, the, the postmodernism on the right now. I've spoken with James Lindsay a couple of times, uh, spoken with uh, Helen Pluckrose, mm -hmm. and now I read some way back, uh, so like early 90s, um, but yeah, I mean, when I was speaking to James Lindsay, he was saying, he was describing it as, um, I'm going to get the name wrong, it was like Broyard or something like that, mm -hmm. he said like that was more where the right was coming from, whereas... Derrida was more where the left was coming from, and they were both kind of branching off from Foucault. And lately I've been seeing Helen Pluckrose saying that she's been reading libertarian writings that are kind of similar or some outright praising Foucault. So that's, you know, to me that strikes me as very bizarre. Yeah, you know, marriage of heaven and hell, I suppose, <laughs> in some circumstances. But, uh, I mean, I'm not the first person to point out that there are some very interestingly conservative dimensions uh, to postmodern theory. Uh, so people like Jürgen Habermas uh, accused Foucault of actually being what he called the young conservative uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and you also see people like Terry Eagleton in his book, The Illusions of Postmodernism. Uh, Terry Eagleton is a Marxist critic uh, who points out that if you look at Foucault's argument that, look, there's no ahistorical way of ascertaining truth claims. Everything is contextually and traditionally located. Uh, and we have to respect that and not try to get out of it. Uh, Eagle didn't point out that you could see very similar reasoning in the work of people like Edmund Burke or Michael Oakeshott. Um, the only difference being, of course, that Foucault interprets uh, 
this way of looking at the world uh, as a reason to try to emancipate yourself from structures of power, whereas these conservative thinkers would insist that what you need to do is instead uh, settle with them, you know, reach an accord of some sort. Yeah, when you mentioned the like the language with Foucault, now, the way I see it is this. If you take postmodernism and if you take, uh, like for lack of better terms, science, just science as a methodology, you know, Take it, if you take that from the science side of things, they might say, okay, we might never actually know the truth, like an objective truth of reality, but this methodology will give you a close approximation that everyone can agree upon. Whereas the postmodernists say, you'll never be, there, there is an objective reality in the background. You'll never be able to get at it because your language creates your own reality for you and for everyone else that's going to be different. Whereas from like the way I see from the science side of things, science is saying, yes, you, we might not be able to completely 100% get an objective truth of reality, but we can use language to describe it as close as possible. Whereas the postmoderns, so they both agree that there's an objective reality. It's just how they want to come about defining it, I think. I think that's where the difference is between those two. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of debate in the philosophy of science about why it is that science functions so well uh, when it comes to describing how the physical world, at the very least, operates. Uh, and I think the best explanation for this is given by somebody like Karl Popper, right, which is that precisely the way you described it. Uh, what science does is it makes testable claims, and then it tries to falsify those claims. Uh, and if you can't falsify a claim about how the empirical world works, then you have pretty good basis for, for supposing uh, that it's true, uh, at least until a better kind of claim comes along uh, or that earlier claim is falsified. Uh, what postmodern theorists will do, uh, kind of in the way you described, is argue that the reason why it is that we can never gain an objective picture of truth uh, is because our language is limited uh, in its capacity to actually describe the world that we inhabit. And there are a lot of different theories uh, about why that is. Uh, we can discuss some of them if you want, but Derrida has a different approach than Foucault, for example. Um, but the political dimension of this, of course, is that since there's no way of adequately describing the world the way it is, uh, what matters to some extent uh, is whose vision of it uh, gets social currency and cultural currency. And there's all kinds of power dynamics and political uh, interactions at play there, which is why postmodern theorists think it's really important uh, to talk about who it is uh, that's able to set the terms of discourse. Okay. Um, well, thanks. Like, I just wanted to get a couple of things about postmodernism straight because, again, I read it a long time ago, so I'm a little fuzzy on it. Like, I've been kind of comparing what's going on on the left and what's going on on the right, and I said there's a lot of similarities between these extremes. Like, you know, people like the horseshoe theory and all that stuff. But yeah. I was saying, forget it. It's it's more of a circle now. It's They're, they're just too similar. Um, like I honestly don't see much of a difference between a Candace Owens and let's say a Cortez, right? Um, like I, I really don't. Uh, but the the critical race theory and the intersectionality, I started reading a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And now that when I read it, I'm like it didn't quite ring true with postmodernism. Um, it you know, and then when I started reading more critiques of that stuff and trying to find out more about it than like I hadn't read critical theory at all until recently mm-hmm. or even heard of it. Right. So when I started looking into that, so I, I don't want to come off like I'm any kind of expert on that or anything like that, but 
you know, when I started reading that, that made a little bit more I, sense. I wouldn't worry. I don't know if anybody is actually an expert in that, right? It's uh, <laughs> too big and too opaque to feel. Right. But, like, so that started making more sense with, like, the the critical theory, the intersectionality and all that stuff, right? And I could see some of the postmodernism where they talk about the language and then creating the, you know, the power structures and all that. But it was only recently when I started hearing people and I like, read your article and I started looking at the right. And it seems like kind of like the left is divesting itself of postmodernism, except for maybe queer theory where they kind of still go back to Foucault. And the right seems to, like, even if they're not naming it or whatever, they seem to be picking that up. And you're getting this real, like, we're, like, I'm sorry, the United States is screwed right now and Canada's not much better off. Yeah, so, I mean, this is one of the things that I talk about in my book, The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, which is that it's important not to see postmodernism just as a theory uh, about language and power, which is what we discussed earlier, but also as a cultural condition, uh, which is something that we're all imbibing uh, at the moment. Uh, and my argument is that once you see postmodernism as a cultural condition, it's easy to understand why it is that you wouldn't see just le just left-wing variants of postmodern politics, but ultimately right-wing variants of postmodern politics. Uh, and the left was defined, uh, certainly through the 1980s, the new left, uh, by postmodern progressive politics. Uh, and it has some accomplishments to its name uh, and some limitations. Uh, and it took a little while longer for the culture of postmodernity to seep into the political right. But now it has. Uh, and that's why we're seeing the emergence of people like Donald Trump uh, with this whole idea of I have your facts and their alternative facts to the mainstream. Um, or, you know, Victor Orban with this idea that you shouldn't trust liberal elites uh, or those who espouse a universalistic liberal way of looking at the world. Or, or you shouldn't instead trust or, I mean, your faith of, or, uh, trust or, yeah. or put faith in your traditions. I mean, you had, uh, what's his name, Rumsfeld back in like you know, uh, Bush Jr., right? Uh, known, but, yeah. known unknowns and known knowns and all that BS. <laughs> yeah, probably the best example I can think of is uh, actually Karl Rove during mm -hmm. the 2000s. Uh, he used to criticize what he called the reality-based community. Uh, and his argument was, you know, all of you people are so concerned with facts and details uh, and what's actually going on. But we're an empire now. Uh, and as he famously put it, we're going to create our own reality. Uh, so there are a lot of antecedents to Trumpism uh, and postmodern conservatism as we see it now uh, that we can appreciate retrospectively. Uh, but yeah, Rumsfeld, Roe, Bush, you know, there are plenty of them. But I mean, like when you've got those... okay. And I, I, that's why I don't like the terms anymore because I don't I don't think they, they serve as much good. But when you had that right left or in the states Republican Democrat split, but it was healthy, and they were kind of holding each other in check a little bit, right? Like you need you need some of that stuff from the left, the humanitarian side. You need that you know you what used to be the push for free speech and you know like liberties and all that, and you needed that conservatism a little bit, like okay. You know, can we spend all that money, right? Like you needed both of those things to work together. Mm. But now it's, you know, like I said this to someone the other day, if Trump says the sun sets in the West, Pelosi's going to go check. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, that's where we're at now. Like take the vac, you know, if there's a vaccine for COVID, take the vaccine or no, don't take it. It's got a microchip. No, it doesn't. I, I mean, like, uh, US has done the most tests. No, they haven't. Like, and they're showing you the same numbers that are telling you two different stories. Absolutely. And I mean, this is one of the things I talk about in the book as well. And I think a big reason for that 
is the changing media landscape uh, that we've all been inhabiting for the last uh, 40 or 50 years. Uh, what Baudrillard, who's a very well-known theorist of postmodernity, would call the saturation of the hyperreal uh, into our conceptions of politics. Uh, and what I mean when I talk about our changing media landscape is uh, what Neil Postman is talking about in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, which is a classic of sociological theory. And Postman points out that earlier uh, generations, the primary way they thought about politics and learned about politics was either through reading books or, or reading newspapers. Uh, and these book media both have their limitations. But the good thing about reading a book or about reading a newspaper is you usually get a well-elaborated, comprehensive perspective on something uh, with a lot of detail. Uh, and in a newspaper, you're often forced to confront different opinions as well and kind of make up your own mind. Uh, what we've seen since the 1980s, particularly, um, is people get most of their information about politics from television and increasingly YouTube. Uh, and the way that television operates is it doesn't try to expose people to complexity. What it tries to do is distill uh, complex facts down to five minutes and presenting the, present them in as uh, entertaining uh, and facile manner as possible. Uh, and right-wing media uh, actually was extremely accomplished at this. Uh, and one of the ways that they made the dissemination of information about politics interesting uh, was by framing this very antagonistic narrative. And people on the left do the same thing. Right? And um, you know, politics became increasingly conceptualized as rather like a sport. You know, you have your team and you cheer for it and it's always good, uh, and the other team is bad. You can see this in the kind of rhetoric people like Limbaugh or Gingrich uh, would use. Uh, and given that, it should be no surprise that after 20, 30, 40 years of living in that media landscape, uh, it's not really a surprise that people don't want to talk to each other uh, because they've been primed not to accept what the other side has to say as relevant or interesting. Yeah, and then you, like I said, you kept... And I should say, this is why I like these podcasts, right? Because I think this is a really good way of actually um, talking about things in a more comprehensive way than what you usually see in, like, a five-minute YouTube video. Yeah, or even, okay, like, or you, you watch something on CNN, you read a panel with 10 people on it. It's like, okay, it's, it's a five-minute panel with 10 people. How long, like, what do you get to hear? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're going to bring in an expert from Stanford University to talk about climate change and... Rather than talking about climate change, is going to give you a thirty-minute soundbite, uh, and that's going to be it, right? Yep. Okay, your critiques of Jordan Peterson, because I think you're getting some heat for this now. Um, yeah. Do you want to go into those? Because like that was kind of like, like I said for me, I got to know him because of the C16 thing, and I agreed with him on that. I don't want to say anything about him, uh, you know, as far as I can tell from everything I've read or seen. Like he's respected in his field of psychology, but. He got a lot of stuff wrong about this postmodernism stuff. He, I mean, when he had that debate about Marx, he didn't seem to really know much about Marx. And I don't want to, like, okay, say whatever you want about the book. Um, I mean, he got famous for a self-help book as well. Like, I mean, that, that's what it is. <laughs> like, like, let's call it for what it is. I mean, Anthony Robbins could have come out with that book. <laughs> yeah, and I should say that I certainly don't hate the guy, and I actually have quite a bit of respect for some of his ideas. Uh, you know, I think Maps of Meaning, for example, is an interesting work of Jungian psychology uh, with some Nietzschean and Heideggerian innovations. Uh, so it's not like I actually do disagree with him uh, on everything, right? Uh, that was just kind of the polemical title of one of our articles. Uh, I became exposed to him probably around the same time you did uh, with some of the stuff around Bill C-16 uh, and his YouTube lectures. I think it was called Poli Professor Against Political Correctness. Uh, and I was living in Toronto at the time, finishing my PhD, 
Uh, for a little while, everyone was talking about him, particularly on the political right. And the National Post wrote these glowing uh, kind of op-eds about Petersonian thinking. And this got me kind of intrigued, uh, as what it does, right? Like, well, I wonder who this guy is uh, and why he's drawn so much attention from people on the political right. Uh, and so I started looking into his work and reading his papers and his big book. Uh, and he eventually bought 12 Rules for Life also when it came out. Uh, and what I thought was interesting is that in many ways, what Peterson was doing was developing a neo-modernist critique uh, of the contemporary era uh, that bear, bore a lot of resemblance to earlier modernist uh, right-wing critiques uh, of liberalism uh, and modernity, but leveled by people like Young or Nietzsche or Heidegger. Uh, and that's where the genesis of our book eventually uh, came out of, you know, that I thought it would be interesting to respond to him as a neo-modernist critic from the right. Uh, and to try to show why it is that his understanding of uh, what modernity is all about has serious flaws in it. Okay, yeah. Like, with me, it was um, things like, I think the best term I heard it, and it was just because he was too wishy-washy on it, was Douglas Murray when he said, okay, it's Jesus smuggling. And whatever, be religious, don't be religious, I don't care. But what... Like he is too wishy-washy in those kind of things, and he never, you know, he'll say something like, "Oh, you really think you know what you believe?" Like, you know, that that's impossible. And I'm like, you know, that's it's not a good enough answer. It's not, you know, at one point or other, you have to act like you believe in something or act like you, you know, you have a lens how you view the world. I mean, you you can't just waffle around forever yeah absolutely and i mean the vagueness of some of his terminology is built into the theoretical position that he tends to take i mean nobody's ever actually talked about jungian approaches to the world uh, as being analytically precise uh, in fact by almost by definition since they deal with things like uh unconscious archetypes uh and the kind of coding within mythology uh it's a discipline that's not going to have the kind of precision that we would sometimes want the reason that I decided to criticize Peterson, um, in addition to the ones that I mentioned before, was because I thought he made two kinds of mistakes, uh, and you've mentioned a few of them. Uh, the first mistake is that he doesn't really seem to have a very good understanding uh, of either what progressive theory is all about uh, or what progressives actually want in practice. And you can see this in the way that he tends to characterize so-called postmodern neo-Marxism. Uh, you know, he lumps all these figures together uh, and assumes that the only thing that is really distinctive about postmodern theorists is that they're trying to rebrand Marxism for a new generation uh, because its moral authority had been so undermined by what went on in the Soviet Union uh, that it was necessary to kind of put old wine into new skins uh, in order to sell it. Uh, and I think this is just wrong. I mean, postmodern theory has its own unique attributes. Uh, in many ways, it was a reaction against or critique of Marxism. Uh, and conflating the two leads us to some very unusual philosophical situations uh, where people aren't actually able to get a grip uh, on what it is that they're trying to criticize. Uh, the second thing that I criticize him for is his own substantive political convictions in favor of what I call ordered liberty uh, type supports for capitalism. Uh, so Peterson's own political convictions seem to be that, well, people should be free to a large extent, uh, but they should also try to settle uh, into uh, the contemporary neoliberal era where we're going to have markets, markets are going to be competitive, and certain people will 
inevitably reach the top of a hierarchy uh, through their own competence and abilities. And this is a good thing. Um, and what I criticize them for is that we should be much more skeptical uh, that the status quo that we've been living in over the last 40 years is actually the best that we can do. Uh, and one example of that, of course, is that while capitalism has brought unprecedented wealth uh, and opportunity to many across the globe, it's created extremely inegalitarian and often very unjust forms of social organization uh, that have been detrimental to many, many people across the world, uh, 700 million right now starving. Uh, and we should be a lot more imaginative and trying to think about how we can improve the situation rather than just trying to accommodate ourselves to it. Yeah, I know. Okay. I agree with all that. Like the, if you look at the capitalist societies and I think the term socialist societies gets thrown around a little bit too much and a little bit too liberally. Like people say, oh, well, Canada's socialist. You know, the, the Scandinavian countries are socialist. I'm like, okay, no, Canada's a capitalist country. It's, it's okay. They're, they're all blended economies. They all have private ownership. They're all capitalists, but they have strong social nets. And I think you need more stuff like that than purely one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that I consistently argue is that none of the things that I want to achieve as a liberal socialist, which is how I identify myself, mm -hmm. a liberal socialist in the vein of people like Jurgen Habermas or John Rawls or Salem Benabib, uh, all of it has been achieved in some way, shape, or form in the European social democracies. Uh, so I certainly don't think that we should be trying to radically remake the world. Uh, what I think we should be doing is looking at Sweden, looking at Norway, looking at Denmark as models for where our society should go moving forward. Uh, and one of the silver linings to emerge uh, from the COVID crisis is I think that people are starting to see that there will be a lot of benefit uh, from cooperating together and trying to distribute resources in a more egalitarian manner. Not only because this would be fair, but also because it would help us weather uh, situations like the one we're in right now more effectively. Yeah. And I mean, okay, one thing I'll say about Canada, and it's just like the medical system, like I I like it. Um, you know, a few years ago, I had a kidney removed. I mentioned that I've talked about this before. It cost me 35 bucks a day to stay in the hospital. That was it. Yeah. You know, like, that's awesome. Um job was done really well you know barely a scar uh so yeah like i everything's fine but i can't remember how far back ago it was i don't want to give an exact year but i want to say maybe about 10 years ago when they started op allowing private clinics to open up um i think that made things a little bit better like if you give both the options right you have a very good level of socialized healthcare. Like I'm just talking about this one aspect of it. You have a very good level of socialized healthcare, but if you let those doctors who work in the, you know, the, the national health program, if you let them open up a private clinic where they can spend half their time, if they're good doctors and they, there's a demand for their service, that's the market making them more money. And I'm all for that. Yeah. And there are a number of socialized medical systems in the world that actually blend the two quite effectively. Uh, so what a, a number of the European social democracies will do is uh, they allow their medical practitioners to operate privately, but medical insurance is funded um, by the state. And so you can use your insurance uh, to access any kind of medical resources in the private sector that you want. That might be something that people can consider because it allows people, of course, more choice in who they want to go to and the kind of services they want to acquire, while at the same time ensuring that everyone is covered uh, to a very high level. 
So I don't necessarily think that state funded or sorry, uh, state organized health systems are the best. There's a lot of different options we should look at. I think that we should just be trying to acquire. To, sorry, we should just be aspiring to the most coverage that we can possibly obtain uh, at the highest possible level for everybody. Yeah, I mean, like, I, you know, like I just wanted to pick on. I don't know, not just say pick on, but I just wanted to focus on healthcare because there's so much that you can't. You know, we, we couldn't talk about it all because it's there's way too much of it. But when you just said, you know, there might be problems with the state-run healthcare, and you know, I agree with that. There are issues. And again, again, I think this comes down to both sides have their mantra for this, where it's like, okay, you know, the Republicans, oh, we need smaller government, smaller government. And, you know, the Democrats, oh, we'll, we'll make another department, we'll do this and that. And a friend of mine, Melissa Chen, uh, like the way she said it, and it's, it's perfect. It's like, it doesn't matter about bigger or smaller government. You need effective governance. If you don't have effective government, it doesn't matter how big or small it is it's not going to work. And I think that is one of the things that maybe COVID, you know, like one of the silver linings you can want to pull out of it is it will show what was effective governance because we have data on like which countries did better. What did they do? How did they work? How did they react? And it doesn't mean a cookie cutter approach, but you can adapt some of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I point out, uh, Contra Peterson, is that while it's absolutely true that there will always be some levels of inequality uh, in society, uh, you know, there's no way of getting around that. Uh, we can have a lot of choice about what kinds of inequalities we're prepared to tolerate. Uh, and Thomas McKetty has released a really good book on this right now called Capital and Ideology, where he talks about the history of different um, property regimes throughout history. And he points out that everything from slave societies to the feudal system had apologists who claimed that the established order is natural, cannot be changed. Uh, that the people at the top deserve to be there because God placed them there or they're racially superior or whatever. Uh, and of course, they're all gone right now because we improved upon them. And I would make the same argument right now uh, that there's a lot of good things about the society that we live in. Uh, there's a lot of good things about having competitive markets and having private property. But we shouldn't naturalize that or assume it's necessarily the best way of organizing things. And as you pointed out, we should always be open to looking for ways to improve it uh, if at all possible. And I think European social democracies have pointed to a very interesting and viable step forward for the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, okay, this was again, so this is something I'd be kind of playing around with and I'd spoken to, I've spoken to a couple of people with this. It's, I think the way we look at our societies and uh, our first principles matters on how we're going to go forward on this. Because again, I've, I've, I've you know, used the expression that first free speech is the foundation of all our you know foundation of democracy. It's the bedrock of all our other rights, and I and I think that's wrong. Not the importance of free speech, but the way you think about it. I think we need to change the way we think about our first principles. Like I don't think we need to think of our first principles as foundational. I think if you think of them as a foundation, a foundation is rigid and hard, and you build your structure on it. So. If the principle is free speech, the structure, part of the structure, the wall that goes up is the First Amendment. So then you have people saying, oh, well, it's a private company. It doesn't matter if they don't do it because it's not the government. But the First Amendment is not the principle of free speech. The First Amendment is something that came out of it. So if you change your thinking about your first principles and you think of them not as a foundation, but as the earth of a garden, and then your laws and everything that spring up, if that's something that's coming up and it's like, okay, this is not good, it's killing 
it's killing the garden. It's, it's affecting everything else. It's weed. Pull it out. You can. Whereas if you've got something like the First Amendment, I mean, you basically have to tear that down if you don't like it. Like if it's a foundational thinking, right? Like if you're thinking it's foundational like that and it's like, you know, the principle, like you won't think about the foundation until it goes bad. Whereas if it's a garden, you always have to look at it. You know, like, I think we have, we've lost track of what our first principles are and we need to go back to those. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the reasons why I think philosophy and critical theory can be extremely helpful because they force you to interrogate what you take to be first principles uh, and determine the role they should play in framing your understanding of the empirical world and what is just and unjust going forward. Uh, when it comes to things like free speech, I'm very committed to the idea that free speech and deliberation are an integral part of democracy and democratic culture. Uh, and they're one of the most astounding developments um, to emerge, particularly in the law uh, of liberal states uh, over the last millennia. Saying that, you know, we need to be really clear on what the role of free speech is. is. Uh, it shouldn't be to sit there and espouse hatred. It shouldn't be there to sit there and espouse falsehood. Uh, it should be to facilitate people dialoguing with one another and reaching a richer and more harmonious understanding of how the world operates uh, and what we should all be achieving together. Uh, and when we approach the things that way, uh, we recognize that speech is just one part in a much richer puzzle. Uh, it's not the be all and end all. And there are other things that we should be prioritizing as well. For instance, achieving a more fair society, uh, which would be very important um, by ensuring that we treat others well. Uh, and these are areas where our society falls short right now. Yeah, no, I mean, okay, like I said, I just picked out one thing because I'm saying, okay, you have to decide what those principles are, but I think you have to, like, you can't be, you can't then coalesce all that into like a hard, rigid foundation and forget about it because even people, okay. And I, there's organizations like fire. Like I said, I'm, I'm a, I don't want to say an absolutist because I, you know, I don't believe in like, I, I think the first amendment, as far as laws goes, says it the best way, like, you know, an immediate and imminent threat of harm. Like that's where the, the limit is. Um, but the, like there's organizations like fire that kind of pointed out, but a lot of the people who you see on Twitter, like you know, little blue check marks or people with large followings on YouTube and whatever, and they they blather about free speech and they blather about the first amendment and they think the first amendment is the end all and be all about free speech. And I'm like, no, it isn't. It's they, they've, they lack that understanding because they, they've forgotten where it comes from They're They're looking at the law and not at the foundation of where it comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And the basis of defenses and free speech in the liberal tradition, and I think John Stuart Mills put this very well, uh, is that it's supposed to make people smarter and make people more curious uh, about what's going on in the world. And I think that oftentimes it does do that. Uh, the problem with a lot of these self-appointed defenders of free speech uh, is they're not actually interested in having a more smart conversation or, or trying to understand the world more accurately. What they're often trying to do is push a dogmatic agenda that has many reactionary elements and they're not very curious to find out what the other side has to say. Uh, and in these kinds of circumstances, invoking uh, being defender of free speech is really just a way to glamorize what's fundamentally a very reactive uh, and uninteresting and uncurious perspective about the world. Yeah. I mean, it's like I said, uh, you know, just go bring back to what we kind of started with, uh, the right and the left, the... 
you have the Candace Owens and the Charlie Kirks of the world. And I mean, you can go up and down the spectrum on the right and you can go up and down the spectrum on the left. It's, but like, like I said, that, that like started Candace Owens and go further crazy. Um, you know, that's the same as the crazies on the left. And they're, it's, they both want to stifle the other side. They both say the other side doesn't want to talk to you. They both, they, they use the same language. They use everything else. They use the same tactics. Yeah, it's it's like this. This the more I start reading about this, the more I see it. Okay, it's all coming from you know, a common thought pattern. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Candace Owens of the world and Charlie Kirk's of the world aren't really interested in improving public discourse, right? What they're interested in doing is advancing an agenda that placates their audience and makes them money. Uh, and that's fine; they should be allowed to do so. I'm not saying the state should intervene to prevent it, but we really should be aspiring to a higher level of public discourse than that. So I think that we'd have a much better world uh, if the Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk's of the world were far less uh, numerous uh, and we had interesting commentators that actually contribute uh, to people's understanding and intellectual curiosity in their stead. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just it. Like, we should, they're there. Let them speak. Let them whatever. They can sit at the kitty table and yell at each other all they want. And we can you know, go have a grown-up conversation somewhere, right? Like, that's, that's all you really need to do. Uh, I know, I know you got to like. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you got to get going. But uh, if you got anything else you want to talk about, uh, if you want to talk about your book, where people can get a hold of you, anything sure. Like you, like anything you want to get off your chest? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's not a problem. I mean, uh, if any of your listeners are interested in contacting me, they can always reach me at my email, which is uh, mattmcmanus three hundred at gmail dot com, uh, or they can add me on Twitter at uh, at mattpaulprof. Uh, and there's just a picture of me and my wife and my book. Uh, and I certainly do hope that people pick up our new book, which is Myth and Mayhem, a leftist jo- critique of Jordan Peterson. Uh, and if they're a fan of Professor Peterson, uh, I hope they think our critique is interesting uh, and they try to take it seriously. Uh, or if there's someone who is um, feels compelled to just disown uh, or dislike anything, everything that Peterson has to say, I hope they still read the book uh, and try to appreciate that he is worth taking seriously uh, and engaging with as a critical foil. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And thanks everyone for joining. No and I'll be back.